Hi, I'm Cheryl Prashner, and this is FolkPod. This week's guest is Daryl Purpose. And I thought if I just read what is written on his Wikipedia page, you'll have a good sense of what Daryl is all about. He's an American singer-songwriter known for his narrative, often very personal, lyrics and fingerstyle guitar. Before becoming a professional musician, Daryl was a professional blackjack player and was known as one of the best in the world. In 2010, Purpose was inducted into the Blackjack Hall of Fame. Purpose has the voice of James Taylor, the brains of Bob Dylan, and the soul of Willie Nelson. There you have it, folks. Welcome, Daryl Purpose. Hello, Cheryl. How are you? I'm great. I haven't read that, so that's interesting to hear the my wiki. Oh, you never read that before? No, no, I haven't seen that. That's kind of cool. You know, you do sound a lot like James Taylor. So I'm sure you've had a lot of people say that. I've met James a couple of times, and I have told him that it doesn't bother me how much he sounds like me. <laughs> that's a true story. What does he say? <laughs> I do hear it a lot. <laughs> I love it. That's great. Well, thank you so much for being a guest on the show. You know, it's a real treat for me. As I mentioned to Daryl on a phone call, he's been on my list of people I've wanted to talk to since we kind of started the show. And I was a little shy and I told him <laughs> I felt a little bit like a dork being shy. And then he said, you are a dork. <laughs> I said that? That's how our first correspondent. I can't believe I said <laughs> he that. He messaged it to me, actually. <laughs> I see. Okay. I texted it. Okay. Yeah, you texted it. It was the truth. I first remember seeing you, as we tend to do, in a Folk Alliance showcase, and I've been intrigued by your sound ever since. I don't know anything about your musical journey. Like, what came first? Singing? Guitar? Was there a band instrument, you know, in your youth? How did you get to play music? And did you know at a young age that you had that voice? Well, I sang really badly for a long time, actually. Huh. My mother, who gave me the book Beat the Dealer in my Christmas stocking when I was 16, also gave me my first guitar when oh. I was 13. I was mostly listening to AM radio, and I was always intrigued by songwriters right from the beginning. But when I was an older teenager, I went off to Las Vegas and became a professional blackjack player. And I was the guy that always just took his guitar. I traveled around the world, and I always had my guitar I always loved it, and I just always played Paul Simon songs and Jackson Brown songs and Dan Fogelberg and some others, and hmm. once in a while wrote a song, but it took quite a while. It was quite a, quite a journey to the point where I decided I was going to be a touring singer-songwriter. You play beautiful fingerstyle guitar. Is that self-taught? Well, thank you. It's mostly self-taught. You know, it comes from listening to Richard Thompson and Bruce Coburn, two of the best. Hmm, yeah. And a lot of practicing, really, in the beginning. Not so much the last 20 years, <laughs> but a lot of like turning a, some sports game on and turning the sound down and just sitting there <laughs> and just Travis picking the heck out of it for hours. That's pretty amazing. Where were you living when you sort of picked yourself up and went to Vegas? You know, I don't tell many people this, but I'll tell you, Cheryl, <laughs> I grew up in the San Fernando Valley. Oh. Yeah. Reseda. Okay. As a matter of fact. Beautiful yeah. part of the country. People ask you where you're from. I say Colorado. <laughs> I lived in Colorado for about 20 years. Yeah. And it felt so much like home. The first time I, I walked through there on the Great Peace March for Global Nuclear Disarmament with about four or 500 other people, we were walking from Los Angeles to Washington, D.C., and it took my breath away. So... You played music, but the Peace March thing wasn't till the late 80s or mid 80s? 
Yeah, it was 1986, and I had never performed before. I had played music for myself and maybe my family, but I went on the uh, Peace March because I had been inspired by Jackson Brown and the No Nukes and thought I could lose some weight. (laughs) None of that was true, but I imagined that I could take my guitar and play music for people. And boy, that that's kind of what happened. There were 1,200 of us. We got out into the desert in uh, Barstow and the organizer of the walk flew in on a helicopter and said, you guys can all go home. We're bankrupt. <gasps> wow. And most people did, but there were four or 500 of us that stayed and everybody did what they could. People that could cook did that. People that could hide the vehicles from the repossession <laughs> crews <laughs> did that. And <laughs> Me and some people I had met, we went up to Las Vegas where I had a condo and we began to sing songs about why we were walking and write songs and became a band. And I won't say music was the reason we walked into Washington, D.C. eight months later, but I won't say that it's not. You might not have had it not been for music, right? I really do think that's true. We met so many of our heroes and we got so much support and we performed. We got young David Baumgarten, he must have been about 17 at the time, but we took a collection, flew him back to Atlanta. He drove back in his van full of sound equipment. And so (laughs) we had a traveling sound van the whole way. We played in um, schools and churches and city halls and and just for the marchers. Now, were you playing cover tunes, you know, old folk songs? Were you playing originals at the time? It was very Peace March oriented, that's for sure. We played a lot of covers, but we played a lot of originals as well. I wrote a song called Ground Zero Mm -hmm. and uh, had a couple other songwriters in the band that were just really great. And we were doing it. We were walking across the country playing songs that we had written for peace. It was great. We got support from people like Holly Near and Casey Kasem and uh, Jackson Brown Graham Nash, James Taylor, Peter Yarrow. And uh, my great memory is of Pete Seeger. Yeah. You know, this is 1986, right? And they said, well, Pete can come out and see you. We were in Colorado at that point. We were at Red Rocks. We were camped in the parking lot of Red Rocks. They said, you know, Pete can come out and see you. But remember, he's old. He's not singing anymore. He can't really. <laughs> you know? They didn't know him too well, did they? No, they didn't. And he came out and it was raining and we all crammed, a couple hundred of us crammed into this big tent. And he just led us in sing-along after sing-along for hours. And uh, it was really something. He came out a number of times and we ended up doing some shows with him and hanging out at his cabin in upstate New York, sleeping in his barn. What a treat. Yeah. What a treat. Yeah, it was pretty special. How did you get involved with that peace march? What led you to that? Obviously, your life was not as musical at the time. You were... Right. Yeah, I was a blackjack player. What am I doing on a peace yeah. march? I kind of like not being put in a box, you know, and that seems to be what comes up right. over and over again for me. You start trying to put me in a box as a blackjack player. Huh. Well, I'm going to go on a peace march. So. <laughs> <laughs> I'll show them. Right, right. <laughs> I mean, that was sort of how you developed your chops was on that Peace March. Yeah, that's, it was my first performing that I ever did. At the wow. time, we were walking across the United States and we had a lot of support, mostly support, but there were some people that said, you can't do that in Russia. So the next year we went and did it in Russia. <laughs> you know, it was just kind of an interesting parallel between us that we didn't know we had. Yes. When you listen to the interview that was done 
with me, Caroline interviewing me. Yes. You know, you heard that I had been in Russia at the pretty much exact same time that you went to Russia. And I'm so fascinated about, did you just put yourself on a plane, you guys? Like, what did you do? Well, we had organizers and Gorbachev was really, you know, there was the whole perestroika and mm -hmm. glasnost thing and the proverbial walls were coming down. And my friend Alan Affelt from the Peace March organized this citizen gathering, you know, 200 Americans, 200 Soviets. And we paraded and walked from Leningrad to uh, Moscow. Hmm. And the great story is that towards the end of the walk, you know, Alan thought, well, it would be great if we could celebrate with a music thing, right? A music show. And so he calls up Bill Graham oh. and he says, Bill, if I get showtime to film this and uh, I get Steve Wozniak to put up a half a million, will you produce it? And then he calls up Steve Wozniak and says, Steve, if I get Bill Graham to produce this, <laughs> So it's like that, right? And it happened. The first ever outdoor stadium rock concert in the history of the former Soviet Union before Billy Joel, I will say. Wow. Because <laughs> he often gets credit, but we were there sure. the year before. So who was there? So Santana hmm. was the headliner, really. Uh, Bonnie Raitt, James Taylor, the Doobie Brothers were hmm. the uh, well-known American bands. And then my band, Collective Vision, got to play in that too. Your second gig. <laughs> <laughs> right, exactly. Well, I had played a bunch on the Peace March, but I hadn't started my solo touring career. That didn't happen until 10 years later. So 10 years before I started my music career, wow. I played in what will always be my biggest gig. You know, 30,000, 30,000 people at Ismailova Stadium. Yeah, that's amazing. But just being there, I'm sure, like myself, is life-changing to have been there at that time. Yeah, it was really interesting to hear that. And I think actually hearing about your experience there is what made me reach out to you about the podcast. Oh, that's amazing. I'm so glad you did. Uh, it was an amazing time to be over there because, you know, rock and roll was still illegal, right? Yeah. <laughs> As was the Jewish music that we were playing. Obviously. There you go. So crazy to be there at that time and bringing that kind of music. So what was the fan reaction like? Well, it was amazing. Of course, you yeah. ban rock and roll and you guarantee a big audience. And that's what happened. They were trading tapes <laughs> yeah. and they just loved Western music. And uh, oh. I snuck in with a friend to this underground rock club and they heard that two Americans were there mm -hmm. and um, they said, well, you got to get up and play. And I got up there and it was just a crazy, everybody standing, you know, hundreds of people shoulder to shoulder. And um, I played Sting's Russians. Did you really? I did. Well, that was nervy. <laughs> it's one of my all-time favorite songs, but it's also one of the creepiest yeah, songs. Yeah, they went crazy, though. They loved it. Love, love, loved it. Wow. So we had lots of musical experiences throughout that three weeks and culminating in the, the big concert. Huh. So you come back from the Soviet Union and, and you don't go out and play music for a living. Do you go back to blackjack? Yeah, I mean, I, I would have to think about it. But what I know <laughs> is that I've never had a real job. So. <laughs> <laughs> so I must have been doing some card playing. And uh, I was doing a lot of open mics in okay. Los Angeles. Yep. And I did open mics and little showcases, Genghis Cohen, Western Beat with Billy Block, things like that. And I got into some trouble. My 
boundaries with the law were not what they should be. Say what? They were not what they are now. <laughs> Do tell. It could have been really bad. But what happened was they sentenced me for this nonviolent crime. <laughs> um, they sentenced me to three months in a halfway house. So, what? and you know, I don't know anything about a halfway house, but I'm living in Venice. The halfway house is in East Hollywood. And I show up there with a little suitcase. This is my story. This is my story of becoming a national touring singer-songwriter. I show up there with a suitcase and they say, well, you'll have to go to your intake meeting. And I show up and this woman says, well, you know, we're a work release program. So if you work, you can leave here during the day. You don't have to spend the whole three months Hmm. incarcerated. And I had a copy of my first CD that I recorded in living rooms of friends, I pulled it out, I put it on the table. And I said, well, I'm a national touring singer songwriter. I'll have to go home and work on my career. <laughs> and she said, okay. Wow. And every Monday through Friday, I drove home to my house in Venice Beach and I began to work on my career. I didn't have a career. I played open mics in Los Angeles. So were you writing songs there? What are some of the songs that came out of that period? (laughs) There's a few songs. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, I bet. Certainly, Right Side of Zero is the title of my first album, painted a picture from my gambling days. Springtime, sunrise, and a warm desert morning. I'll be your honey, you can be. Been a while since the cards smiled and a one fine day. I'll be heading down the road on the right side of zero. There's a break even point I know just where it is so hard to tell. But if you don't know where There was a song called Halfway Home that comes out of that experience at the Halfway House. When Laura Lee was accepted down at the police academy Well, I took my luck to the Isle of St. Martin by way of Atlantic City By the time I'd left inside my boots I had hidden half a mill but if the hired goons don't get you, darling, you know, U.S. Customs will. Oh, I'd wish I had a window so I could stare across the street and wish the guards would kill the light so I could get some sleep. And I'd feel a hole inside my heart. Wish I had a phone. You know, I went home, I found a booking agent online. There wasn't very much online in those days, but there were some sort of chat threads. I forget what they were even called, but I just saw some people post and they said, oh, I'm a booking agent. And I was like, oh, you're a booking agent? I want a tour. (laughs) And I didn't even know what it meant. (laughs) I need a booking agent. (laughs) Another guy said, I'm a record company. You know, I said, oh, you're a record company? I have a record. (laughs) (laughs) And I got a booking agent. 
and a label. Oh. I did my first tour because, you know, it's a work release program. You can travel. I mean, I did my first tour wow. on the East Coast while I was technically incarcerated. <laughs> they wanted to know where I was every night. That is an incredible story. And so that was 96. You had not found Folk Alliance yet or all those people? You kind of were doing this all on your own, right? I believe my first Folk Alliance was in Washington, D.C., right at the beginning of that. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I had not found Folk Alliance yet. I found Folk Alliance by finding a booking agent and a label and <laughs> backwards writing some songs, <laughs> recording my first album. <laughs> all while being incarcerated. Amazing. Wow. I wasn't planning on telling that story today, Cheryl, but Okay. <laughs> I've heard you before on this podcast. You do seem to bring things out of people. So. Oh, well, you know, it's part of who you are. It's part of how you got here. It's part of how these songs were written. They're incredible stories. They're very visual. Yeah, you're just a great storyteller. Well, thank you. Yeah. I found early when I started a tour that you could play people some songs, but if you really told them a story, that's really what drew people in. Oh, absolutely. Especially if you're doing anything from small venues to house concerts. That's what I want as an audience member. I want the stories that go along with the songs, but I also want I want to get to know the artist better, which is why I think we're lucky in the scene that we're in. We have that opportunity. I know in those early days, especially, you know, I did a lot of shows where you, you can look people in the eye. Mm -hmm. That's kind of remarkable to have that kind of performance setting where the listener can look at the performer and the performer can look right back at them. Is that comfortable for you or uncomfortable? I loved it. I loved it. I mean, I was just a, a nerdy college dropout blackjack player who was desperately trying to feel something. Can you put your finger on how you became so good at blackjack? Yeah, that's a tough one. I was a little bit on the spectrum and I worked really hard. I practiced a lot and I got my 10,000 hours hmm. while I was still a teenager. Wow. Was that all in Vegas or did you travel? The beginning of it was in Vegas, but I got thrown out of a bunch of casinos in Vegas pretty early on. And so by the time I was 22, 23, I was traveling all around the world. Now, do you get thrown out because you're good? Yeah. I'm asking as a total, I know nothing when it comes to that. Oh, okay. Well, yeah. I mean, I was a card counter. They don't like card counters. Casinos don't. I was going to say, if, yeah, okay. <laughs> they don't like it if you're playing good. They do not like it. <laughs> I remember the first time I got thrown out on this trip, I called my mother. I said, Mom, it works. So this is all from the book that she gave you? Yeah, pretty much. And how come she gave you that book? Did she ever tell you that? Oh, yeah. She thought it was about cards, and she knew I liked to play cards. Okay. She did not understand it was about gambling or blackjack or Las Vegas. <laughs> Oops. Yeah, right. I've since forgiven her. She did give me my first guitar. <laughs> okay. <laughs> was she horrified when she took it up as a profession? No, my mother supported me whatever I did, pretty much. She was my biggest fan. Yeah. Yeah. And in the end, when I became too famous to actually bet the money on a blackjack table, we would have other people come along and bet the money and we would be in disguise and we'd signal them. <laughs> One of my mother's favorite times of her life was the months that she spent as a BP for our professional blackjack team. She loved it. That's crazy cool. <laughs> and she loved the music too. That's bonding with your mom in a whole different way. Right? How cool are you? Right? It's awesome. Now it's the 90s and you're like actually on the road, you're touring. And in our scene, you're becoming like, in my eyes, super famous. That's how I see it. Well, thank you. 
from like 96 to 2005, I gave everything just the same way I got good at blackjack. Yeah. I worked every moment of every day, you know, and sometimes that work was driving and sometimes that work was writing a song. Sometimes it was performing or practicing or just everything I could do to right. have something to present to people and to be a performing songwriter. And while you were a performing songwriter, you were not playing blackjack at all, right? That's right. That 10 years. And in fact, I didn't like going into casinos, so I didn't really play that much, even when I was really good at it. Right. So at the point where I became a touring singer songwriter, I really was, I was out of money. You know, I was driving my truck around, <laughs> sleeping in it. You know, and it started at a really low level. You know, I'd drive 500 miles, play for tips and hope <laughs> that I sold some CDs because you got to put gas in the yeah. tank, right? <laughs> You know, I started entering all those song contests and honestly, I didn't know what I had to offer. I did my best, but I, I started entering all these song contests and I just started right. winning them all. You know? Oh, what was the first one? Do you remember? The first one was probably Napa, I think. It doesn't exist anymore, but I remember. No, I mean, what song? Oh, what songs? Last Great Kiss of the 20th Century. It was Friday, December 31st. 1999 All those new years came and went But I was gonna make it special this time So I walked on down to Venice Beach And I found her apartment there Knocked on the door and she looked kind of surprised She said, hey, what are you doing here? Well, I said, I've noticed you looking at me Lately I've been thinking about you quite a lot Sometimes we let these things slip through our fingers Sometimes not I don't know if it was what I said or how I said it And I don't know that I care Cause we walked on down to the Santa Monica Pier And I figured we'd be part of some fireworks there And the moon shone bright Rolled off her hair and the crabs lift our feet And the salty air and the time flew by As I looked at my watch Whoa, come on baby, here we go It was the last great kiss of the 20th century No time to think about the millions before Took her in my arms, rest history Right Side of Zero and Mr. Schwinn, that was pretty early in those songs. Mr. Schwinn was as thin as a pelican's grin And I took him my bike when the wheel wouldn't spin When the wheel wouldn't spin or the gear wouldn't shift For fixing a bike, the man had a They were stashed in the back of his waterfront shack His and her bikes perfectly matched Perfectly matched like a groom and a bride Waiting to take their honeymoon ride He'd say one of these bikes is more than a So I was at the Sisters Oregon Folk Fest, I think it was probably 97. Yep. And, you know, it's just all so new to me. 
And I met the judge there that year was a guy named Dave Carter. I was just going to ask you about your relationship with him. Oh, this is so cool. Okay, go ahead. He had won the contest the year before. So he was the judge when I was playing. And I heard Tracy tell the story just recently. He had just met Tracy. So Tracy was there and she says that Dave wasn't really paying attention, you know, and I started my two songs or whatever it was. And Tracy says she put her thumb in his back, said, hey, hey, this is pretty good. And so, you know, I won. And so I figured he had pretty good taste and we became fast friends. (laughs) (laughs) Did you guys ever write a song together? We never wrote a song together, but he wrote a song for me. He wrote a song about me. Which one is that? Annie's Lover. It was on his first, the first Dave and Tracy album. I didn't know that was about you. Well... Now you know. (laughs) It's quite an honor. Quite an honor. We hadn't seen each other for a month or two, and we got together in Oregon somewhere, and he had the CD already. (laughs) And I looked at the titles, and I thought, oh, this is going to be great. And I looked at the song called Annie's Lover, which I had not heard. And I knew that there was an Annie (laughs) in my life, (laughs) and I knew that Dave knew her. And I just pointed to it. He's like, Oh, yeah. I had a dream about you. Wow. (laughs) You were in a Dave Carter dream that turned into a song and your cool factor just went up. A real highlight of my life, for sure. So, you know, when I won the song contest, you get to play in the concert that night. 500 people. I think Chris Smither was there. Pat Donahue was there. John McEwen was there. And, you know, I was so nervous. I hadn't played on a big folk stage like that. I was so nervous. And I played Mr. Schwinn. Okay. You know, I played one song because she won the song contest. She get to play one song. And I walked out this maze and back to the green room. And I had a gig in Idaho the next day. And so I had to get going pretty quickly. And John McEwen came up to me and said, hey, will you come out and sing with me? I was like, well, I can't. Wow. I've got to drive to Idaho. I actually did not know who he was at the time, okay. but <laughs> yeah. I've got to drive to Idaho. So I got some finger sandwiches and I got my guitar all packed <laughs> up. And some time passed before I would walked off stage. And some guy came running into the backstage and says, Daryl, you've got to come back out. They haven't stopped applauding. What? And, I, and, and oh. oh, it was such, you know, what a deal. And so I took wow. my guitar out and I ran back out there and I played one more song. And then I got in my car and I drove to Idaho and I had Dave's first record <laughs> with me. And I, I played it for the entire 10 hours. I bet. Drive to Idaho. I've done that before. Oh. That's an amazing story. And then when I realized they hadn't toured at all, and I was kind of six months into touring, I was like really experienced, <laughs> right? You know, And I just said, Dave, just come with me. We'll drive around. Just come on my tour. I've already got the gigs booked. And Dave's like, well, can I bring this woman I just met? (laughs) And I'm like, sure. (laughs) Literally just met? So Tracy came too. So you guys toured together for a bit. A tiny little bit. And then they took off like a rocket through the folk world. It's amazing what we have missed with him not being here. Who knows? It's difficult Hmm. to imagine. Well, would you sing a song for us? Oh, I'd be happy to. You know, what's interesting is the very last song I released is a Dave Carter song. Why don't I sing that for you? Oh, okay. Okay. Strap on my guitar. On a 
was sleepy in this ocean world in a dream there was rhythm in the splash and roll not a voice to sing so the moon fell on the breakers and the morning warmed the waves and a single sail to jump and hum for joy so to say this is my home this is my only home this is the only sacred ground that I have ever known should I stray in the dark night alone rock me goddess in the gentle arms of Eden then the day shone bright and rounder till the one turned into two and the two into ten thousand things old things into new and on some virgin beach had one lonesome critter crawl and he looked about and shouted out in his most astonished draw this is my home is my only home this is the only sacred ground that I have ever known should I stray in the dark night alone rock me goddess in the gentle arms of Eden and all the sky was buzzing the ground was carpet green and the weary children of the wood went dancing in between and the people sang rejoicing while the fields were glad with grain this song of celebration from their cities on the plain this is my home this is my only home this is the only sacred ground that I have ever known should I stray in the dark night alone Rock me, goddess, in the gentle arms of Eden. Now there's smoke across the harbor, and there's factories on the shore, and the world is ill with greed and will, an enterprise of war. But I will lay my burdens in the cradle of your grace, in the shining beaches of your love, sea of your embrace. This is my home, this is my only home, this is the only sacred ground that I have ever known, should I stray in the dark night alone, rock me goddess in the gentle arms of Eden, rock me goddess in the gentle arms of Eden. Magical is right. Yay. Oh, that was beautiful. Thank you. Of course, I muted myself so I could sing along. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. Yeah, you have to sing along right, that song. At the top song. of your lungs. You just have to. I mean, arguably, oh. in the conversation for the greatest song ever written, uh-huh. thank you, Dave, Dave Carter. Yeah, incredible. Really beautiful. And I love that people are still doing his songs. And I'm so in love with your voice. Oh. You say people... Saying you sound like James Taylor. You also sound a little bit like Richard Chandel. It's just so beautiful. Ah, uh, thank you. So thank you for singing that. Well, tell me a little bit about some of the songs you've written, like things like Orange Raincoat. What's that about? Well, if we're going to talk about Orange Raincoat, we have to talk about Paul Zolo. Right. What a blessing for me to 
connect with Paul Zolo. And we've written so many wonderful songs together. And almost entirely, they're his lyric and my music. I was just going to ask you that. Who writes what? Co-writing is fun, huh? Well, we've discovered a thing. You know, I think that he's just a great, great lyric writer and songwriter, too. And I think I can write a song, too. But my strength is is music. And hmm. so we've just found the strength. And it's been relatively easy for us to do because he'll send me a lyric. And, you know, it's like different times. Like there are some lyrics that I, I don't touch. I just keep them exactly how they are. And then there are other lyrics that we work out together. Now, Orange Raincoat, he sent me a whole <laughs> song. And I wrote this music, the music that I think pretty much that exists right now. And he said, oh, I didn't know you were going to write such great music. I'm going to have to rewrite this song. He goes back and writes a completely other lyric. Oh, no. <laughs> yes. Really? Interesting. True story. That happened. And then I remember I was touring through the Pacific Northwest with my longtime fiddler, Daryl S. And we walked into a, a Starbucks and she's like, hey, who's that? They were playing Orange Raincoat <laughs> at the Starbucks. One, two, one, two. Inside a song of Kentucky High school dropout skating around and I can't help it if I'm unlucky On open envelopes and magazines Pajamas, black and flannel But then it's seen black and white Only gets one channel and I'm an orange wrinkle walking as the rain starts coming down. I'm an orange wrinkle walking through a blue umbrella town. You know you made it. I was thrilled, you know. Hey, I love Starbucks. <laughs> when I first started touring, are you kidding? In 96, 97, oh, Starbucks was amazing. You would have air conditioning right. or heating and a bathroom and water, as much water as you want. You knew what the coffee was going to taste like. I mean, you know, I don't go to Starbucks when I'm at home, but when I travel. It's important. Yeah. Then there it was, Orange Raincoat and Starbucks. You wrote a song called Baltimore about Edgar Allan Poe. Well, that's another Paul Zolo song. Okay. and. The story goes that he sent me the lyric and I wrote the music and I played it out a little bit and it wasn't getting the response that I had hoped for. And I kind of had put it away mm -hmm. and and then recording next time around the album with Billy Crockett down in Texas mm -hmm. near Austin, uh, Blue Rock Studios. That's an amazing experience. But we were trying to put together the songs that would go on the album Actually, it was the second album that I recorded with him was Still the Birds. That album is, every song is me and Paul Zolo. Okay. So Interesting to know. That's kind of our album. <laughs> you know, I sing the songs, but he wrote most of those words, almost every word. Hey, it's very Elton John and Bernie Taupin. That's fine by me. Yeah. I go the mm -hmm. easy route. <laughs> However it happens. Yep. You know, and I've found the, the connection with Paul just uh, such a great, easy way to... A good song. Who wrote the lyrics for When Buddha Smiled at the Elephant? That's Paul. Oh, cool. That was at my prodding. Because at that point, you know, we were going to do an album and it was going to be all our music, right? All him and me. And so far mm -hmm. we had Evergreen Avenue, a song about 
a graveyard for gang members in East LA. Mm. And we had Edgar Allan Poe. We had that one about the death of Edgar Allan Poe. And we also had a story about a a draft dodger who ends up finding a water tower and starts shooting everybody. And those don't sound like great songs, but I think they came out really (laughs) good. I like those kind of things. So those three songs are really downer, you know? And I said, Paul, and he says, well, tell me about your life. And I started telling him about these retreats I was taking with Thich Nhat Hanh and how I was learning to meditate. He looked up this uh, perhaps apocryphal story of when uh, Buddha tamed an elephant and he wrote it up and the whole wide world was singing of man and war and art Buddha smiled at the elephant with his heart the Buddha was a gentle rain fell over the land he held the mighty elephant like a lotus in his hand The elephant stood frozen Like she had turned to stone Such a force of kindness The beast had never known So she swept away the dust From her master's feet This Buddha beamed with loving kindness Down the broken street The giant tears came falling down like crystal rain when the Buddha came to wash away her pain. That's a cool song. So it was at my prodding, but it was mostly mostly his words. Well, okay, so after all that time you actually took some time off from music. That's true. And that's a story. But can yeah. I tell you one yeah. more thing about when Buddha smiled yeah. at the elephant? So when I w- attended these retreats with Thich Nhat Hanh, some of his monastics, they were very into music and we were able to make some music and they asked me to make music for Thich Nhat Hanh poems. Whoa. And they still sing those poems in their service. And they also put together a CD that they take around with them and they play this music for people and they sell the CD to make money. And I gave them uh, When Buddha Smiled oh, at the cool. Elephant to put on the CD. There's not really a higher thing I think that you could accomplish, I feel like, with my music than to support what they are doing. What an honor. Yeah, yeah, Hmm. very, very much, very, very much. Wow. And where is that located? Well, I know the people from the Plum Village Monastery in upstate New York, but they also have a place in San Diego and they have a place in France. Quite something that they're using your music. Oh, it's just the highest honor. Yeah. Yeah. So what did you do when you took some time off of music? Can you say? Wow. You know, that's another story. It was about 2004-ish. And I had moved to Colorado, even though it was not a good thing for my career. And I had gotten to the point (laughs) where I was making a living. I could actually afford a motel room (laughs) here and there. I headlined Freight and Salvage and McCabe's and Club Passim and Kerrville. I was doing well and I was working all the time and doing maybe 100, 150 shows a year and um, feeling good about it. But I went to Colorado because Colorado called to me. I had always said that during this time I would keep blinders on. I would just keep going as long as one year was better than the next. And then I think 2004 wasn't quite as good as 2003 because I think I didn't release an album. And I didn't feel that 
moving forward. And at the same time, I, I felt that uh, my old friend Munchkin called me and said he wanted to interview me about a book he was writing about gambling. And, you know, I hadn't been gambling at all during this eight, nine, 10 years, whatever it was. He ended up telling me, well, you know, you can, you can gamble online now. Hmm. And I was renting a room from a friend in Manitou Springs, Colorado. And I was like, wow, you know, it would be nice to make some money. (laughs) (laughs) So I bought, and we're going to talk about Starbucks again. I'm so sorry. It's okay. (laughs) But there was no internet in the house where I was. (laughs) So you went to a Starbucks. (laughs) So I went to the Starbucks and I bought a PC, which I had never used before. I always had a Mac and I'd get one latte because I was a broke singer songwriter. I got the one latte and I just started playing around and pretty quickly I was making $200 a day. And then almost just as quickly, I was making $2,000 a day. (laughs) And pretty quickly, I won a million dollars in that Starbucks. What? Yeah. And I went from broke. Poker or blackjack? It was online gambling. So it was a little bit of both, but blackjack's my game. Okay. Yeah. I didn't even know that there was online blackjack. That's incredible. Okay. Yeah, there is. Okay. (laughs) I can attest. So I went from a broke singer-songwriter who cared a lot about that to, you know, and again, it's sort of like people start putting you in a box Hmm. where you're a broke singer-songwriter. It's not true, right? Yeah. I don't have a lot of limits. I don't place a lot of limits on myself. I don't argue for my limits. I argue for my lack of limits. And I just thought, what do I want to do right now? Because I could do anything. I can do anything. And what a feeling. Hmm. And what did I want to do? I wanted to move into the mountains. Mm -hmm. And I bought a house. And for whatever reason, I sat down my guitar for seven years. Mm -hmm. I bought a house and I just hiked in those hills. And I went to retreats with Thich Nhat Hanh. And my house had the best view from a house I've ever seen. is the Continental Divide. You know, I was sort of curious what I could be without the music or who I could be. So seven years. Just sort of rediscovering yourself or discovering yourself? Yeah, there's a lot of growth there, I think. Some spiritual stuff and some health stuff and a lot of that kind of thing. And Is it during that time that you sort of founded or helped found the Second Strings Project? That started when I was in the middle of touring. My friend Kevin Deem from Connecticut, he, he was an activist and he liked to help. He would travel, working at a hospital, he would travel with some of the stuff that this hospital had thrown away and take it to third world countries and give it away. And I thought, mm-hmm. why not do that with used guitar strings? Because I knew all us singer-songwriters, we would change our strings at the end of every gig and just throw them away. And so we ended up, mm-hmm. yeah, we ended up giving out some, we lost track eventually. We came up with a number, but we really made it up. Some 30,000-ish wow. sets of used guitar strings that we gave away. That's pretty awesome. Yeah, that was that time. Hmm. (laughs) I remember a fun story thinking about my house and a neighbor knocked on my door. I didn't tell anybody I was a musician. I didn't tell anybody I was a gambler. I just was the guy (laughs) who tipped well at the (laughs) coffee shop down in town. And a neighbor knocked on my door one time and introduced himself, you know, and he says, you know, I'm kind of into blackjack lately. And I'm like, okay. (laughs) Okay. He says, yeah. He says, I've got a book. And I said, okay, who wrote the book? Who wrote the book that you got? And he tells me, and I say, okay, I know, I know him. He's okay, and you can trust that book. 
he says, well, you know, he's got this section there where he's talking about who's the fastest card counter ever. And I thought, well, that's interesting. And I said to him, who was it? And he says, it's you. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, he knew who you were. Yeah. And I had never read the book. I didn't know this was out in the world, (laughs) but it's a real book, which is fun. Busted. Yeah. You were busted. And then seven years of not playing the guitar and I met Billy Crockett and I thought, you know what? I am ready. I'm ready to make an album. Oh, well, as a fan, I'm very grateful that you're back out playing music. Thank you. Are you writing? Have you been writing over the last crazy time here? I'm not one of these people that uh, sits a time aside daily, but I basically write enough, except for that seven years, I write enough to put out an album when I want to. Okay, that's cool. (laughs) Anything on the horizon? Yeah, I'm recording right now with a guy named Ryan Hommel. Do you know him? He produces Heather Maloney and Seth Glear. Yep, I know them very well. He plays with Amos Lee, tours with Amos Lee. Yep. As somebody who lived in Philly, I'm very, very, very well Yeah, first with Amos Lee. Yeah. You know what happened? It was 2020. It was pandemic year. And I somehow discovered Heather Maloney. Uh, what was it? Oh, I heard a Dawes, the band song, you know, Dawes. Mm-hmm. And I heard one of their songs just slayed me. And I just listened to it over and over and over again. And then I saw this Spotify playlist called Dawes in the Band. Mm-hmm. And it was like all these songs that people from Dawes played in. And every time I'd hear a song and it was like, oh, I really love that. Who's that? It was like Heather Maloney. And then Hmm. five songs later, who's that? It's like (laughs) Heather Maloney. And I don't know Heather. (laughs) You know, I still don't know Heather. Right. But I was just a fan. I felt like that CD, Soil in the Sky by her. I told my friends, this is the best music ever made by humans. I really felt that strongly about it. Wow. We'll all have to check it out. And all of a sudden I started thinking, who produced this? And you know, it's hard. Try to find out online, like who produced what. Yeah. When you don't have to buy the CD, you don't have to know who produced it, right? <laughs> yeah, that's true. You know, it's so smart of you. When people are first starting out, especially, and they want to make a record and they don't quite know which direction to go. And I say, look, pick a bunch of CDs that you love listening to. And if that's the style and the sound you're looking for, you know, look into that. Either how they did it or who they did it with, right? That's a great idea. Yeah. Yeah. Smart. Yep. And so that's how I found out that it was Ryan Hommel that produced that record. And I thought, no way could Ryan Hommel want to work with me. (laughs) And then the more I thought about it, I was like, (laughs) wait a minute. Why not? I've got like probably 12 people in my phone that have his phone number. Why don't I just give (laughs) him a call? And so so we've been working on these. The worst that he can do is say no. That's right. So you didn't do a lot of online playing during the last two years, and now you do something called Three Song Thursday, and every Thursday night on Facebook Live and maybe YouTube too as well, I think. I'm not sure. Yep. YouTube, Facebook. There you are. Yeah. And it's awesome. It's fun. It's so fun. I mean, I don't know what made me do this. I'm not technical, (laughs) but I got a lot of help from technical people. And yeah, I figure it's not a big ask. It's three songs. It's the same time every week. And I'm getting to my 16th week. But you don't just do your own songs. You do covers of other songwriters that you admire, right? Here's the thing. I committed to doing it for a year. That's 150 songs. I don't have 150 songs. (laughs) 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 So... (laughs) 
Chop, chop. So <laughs> I've got to bring in some of my favorite writers. So yeah. sometimes I do one cover of the three songs and, you know, I'll do a Paul Simon or a Dave Carter or a Peter Mayer. It was beautiful stuff. See, I love the way you interpret other people's songs too. I love doing that too, because here's the thing. You can write your best song. You can give it your best shot. But when you can pick a song from any song, you know, right? you could find yourself singing some really great songs. Oh, yeah. I love it. If I recall my band, our first album, Runa, we did a song from Cher. It was like a Celtic band and we did a Cher cover, but it was fun. I love it. Yeah. So every Thursday night, eight o'clock Eastern, I think. That's right. Three song Thursday, Daryl Purpose. Check it out. That's it. Exactly. I've got to ask you this. Okay. I did not prep you for this. Uh, I didn't prep you for any of this, actually. So tell us something kooky, crazy, cute, adorable about you that nobody would have ever guessed. That's funny because I, of course, have heard your podcast. <laughs> and so I, I should have known that. <laughs> and I should have prepared something. But I didn't. Good. Let me go with this. I am a nut about Sherlock Holmes. Ooh, good one. I love Sherlock Holmes. I love anything. Huh. Perhaps with the exception of those Robert Downey Jr. Oh, come movies. on. Come <laughs> on. They were just all beat oh, him up. I Sherlock know, Holmes, but... he wasn't physical. <laughs> he didn't beat people up. He figured them out. He solved them. <laughs> I love those movies. Actually, did you like, was it Cumberbatch? Yeah, that was just amazing. Amazing. Yeah. Oh, you did like, okay, good. Yeah. I think those were great. Oh, yeah. Yeah. That's really interesting. I don't watch like any TV, Right. right? I can't believe I'm saying this. I can't believe I'm admitting it. But I have binge watched one show. Which one? And like, I've watched it, I don't know, five or six times wow. at this point. But it's elementary. It's the Sherlock oh, Holmes. there you go. Yeah. yeah. It's yeah. very, very good. So Sherlock Holmes. I love Sherlock Holmes. Interesting. That's not something I would have guessed. Huh. Well, that's what you asked for. You asked for something. Yeah, that I know. That's guessed. why I love it. That's really cool. <laughs> no, it just makes me think. Interesting. You know, well, I was going to mention, because I just haven't mentioned it in my Camp Ned songwriter retreat, but that's not quirky at all. But you should check that out, campned.org. Tell us a little bit about what Camp Ned is all about. Okay. Well, it all started when I was in Nederland, Colorado, and I've since moved to Portland. But I just wanted to bring together my favorite things, hanging out with friends, talking about songwriting and um, being in the outdoors. And so I started this thing called Camp Ned. And we are now a peer-led singer-songwriter retreat. We ask anybody who comes to present if they want to. They don't have to, but they can present something. And we're all learning and we all teach. And we've had a, a lot of wonderful singer-songwriters oh. at Camp Ned. Tracy Grammer's been there, Peter Mulvey, Ellis Paul. Last year we had Bob Hillman and Christopher Smith, Claudia Russell. How can people find out about how to attend? It's campned.org. Campned.org. Do you need a percussion teacher, maybe? You know, you're so welcome to come. You should come. <laughs> oh, man. Yeah, I know you should absolutely come. It's kind of about friends hanging out, talking about music. Yeah. But the focus is kind of songwriting. But we have people that have come that have never written a song. Oh, wow. That must be so amazing for everybody to be part of that. Yeah, they all end up writing a song. You can't really come and not write a song. Huh. It happens. That's amazing. 
Do you go to one particular place? Has it been at different places? Or We always did it in Nederland until this past year when we shifted to my friend Robin Pressman's home in Occidental, California. Okay. Campned.org, was it? Yes, campned.org. And we're going to do it again in July 2022. Oh, it sounds absolutely perfect. Really, you should come. I'm going to think about that. <laughs> and I'm sure a lot of other people will too, now that they've heard you and your music. People always leave with their life changed. Mm. They always say, wow. I believe that. From now on, I'm going to do this, <laughs> you know, or uh, from now on, I'm going to be like this. And it kind of has to do with creative energy and songwriting in particular. Mm hmm. Well, thank you for facilitating something like that, because I think that's just such an important thing. So thank you. You give back so much to the community, and it's just it's awesome. Thank you, Cheryl. Well, where can people find you on the World Wide Web? All the places for listening to music you can't beat. I mean, I have so many friends that are folk DJs. So if you're around a folk mm. DJ, try to listen there. But Amen. Right. But Spotify is a good place to hear the music, too, and Bandcamp. All the places, you know, DarylPurpose.com, Facebook. Instagram, you know, all the usual places, Cheryl. I know that people aren't putting too many tours together, but do you have anything live at all coming up or is it just wait and wait? There's a little bit of wait. I've got a booking agent, J.D. Miller. Good. I'm thrilled about that. <laughs> Black Oak Artists. Yay. Yeah. So when things are up and running, you're going to be up and running. Yeah, I'm ready to go. I'm ready to go now, but COVID is just kind of holding us down. So yeah. I'm doing this Thursday night thing and I'm going to try to do it all year. I'm just... Good. Completely having a blast with it. I enjoy it quite a lot. Good. Have you um, toured Canada much? I have not. Hmm. Hmm. Not. I'd love to tour Canada. Hmm. What you got in mind? Oh no! Just thinking out loud. Okay. 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 You know where to find me. To be continued. <laughs> <laughs> Daryl, I can't thank you enough for spending some time. Well, thank you. It was such a great pleasure, Cheryl. And I talked so much. I don't think I let you talk at all. I feel badly about that. That's the whole point. I just loved getting to know you better because I started this out, Sean and I started this project out, and I basically went with mostly artists that I've toured with and or or friends mm -hmm. and who have known for a while. And I've not toured with you, and we've never sat down and had a long chat. I am so grateful for this time. You're very easy to talk to, and I've really enjoyed it. Thank you, thank you, thank you. I'm just, I'm so thankful to get to know you better, and I'm excited to share that with the audience that we have here at FolkPod. And Thank you for being part of it. Thank you for reaching out. I look forward to continuing the conversation, having you back, chatting offline and all that stuff. I look forward to it. And uh, folks, check out Daryl Purpose wherever you can get your music. Thanks. You've been listening to Folk Pod. Thank you, Cheryl. See you next time. I can't believe you fasted all day. Good Lord. It's almost bedtime. I'm so excited because I love food. I love food. You're not going to eat till tomorrow? Like, can't you just go have like a big steak or something? <laughs> I'm not going to. <laughs> okay. I'm going to go to sleep in about an hour. I'm wow. going to wake up. It's okay. going to be so great. It's going to be like food day. It's going to be so awesome. <laughs> Folkpod is a production of Long Story Short with me, Cheryl Prashker. Your host, producer, and lead schmoozer. And Shauna Boniface, creator, producer, and editor. Like and subscribe to FolkPod wherever you get your podcasts. And please give us five stars on iTunes. It really helps raise our profile for more listeners. Catch us on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook at The FolkPod. Thanks for listening, and hope to see you next time. <laughs>